You're listening to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. Today we sit down with Bill Witte, the CEO and chairman of Related California, the California arm of the New York-based Related Companies and one of the largest developers in the state, known for ambitious projects like the Frank Gehry design, The Grand. Bill Witte is also seasoned in the public sector, having served as deputy mayor and director of housing for Diane Feinstein when she was mayor of San Francisco, and even training as a planner at the University of Pennsylvania. This and more in this episode of City Speak. City Speak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Based in LA, Batoni Architects helps their clients develop projects for maximum value with particular expertise in new housing models such as co-living, micro-units, and opportunity zone developments. To learn more, visit batoniarchitects.com. Bill Witte, welcome to City Speak. Thank you. So I know that in profiles and interviews you've given in the past, one of the really interesting facts about you that many like to latch on to is your pretty non-traditional path into real estate via city planning. And I definitely want to get there in a second. Uh, but before I do, there's another interesting fact that I'd like to start off with, which is despite being the chairman and CEO of one of the largest developers of dense urban real estate in the country, you were once a creature of the suburbs, were you not? I grew up in an old suburb, Greenwich, Connecticut, though I have to add my parents were pure New Yorkers. My father grew up in the South Bronx and my mother in Brooklyn, and I was born in the city. But I have to confess that I was a creature of the suburbs. And I even read somewhere that for your 16th birthday present, you asked for something rather unusual from your father. I did. Even then, I had a fascination with cities. And I said, will you drive with me into the inner cities of New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport to just drive around, which he did. So, yes, that was not, can I get drunk, or perhaps the usual request. So this urban fascination that you had, uh, you took it with you through high school. You go on to study at Penn. You become one of the inaugural members of its urban studies program. And you finish not only with a bachelor's degree, but also a master's in city planning. Uh, But you don't stay in academia. In fact, you take a job with the Philadelphia mayor's office in the 70s. Isn't that right? That's right. This was an eventful time in Philadelphia history. So the mayor was Frank Rizzo, the ex-police chief. And Philadelphia, even by Philadelphia standards, was, and I'll use the term euphemistically, old school. In fact, a number of the electeds that I worked with were later indicted and convicted in the Abscam scandal. So it was going from the ivory tower to the streets. My first community meeting was in North Philadelphia, a largely African-American neighborhood that hated the mayor. And I was theoretically a representative of the mayor, not the friendliest of confines. And I would love to just hear you sort of ruminate out loud, especially given this interesting kind of part of your life working uh, in urban development, but specifically on the local government side. What is it about local politics and the nature of local politics and its relationship with real estate that might make it so prone to this kind of corruption. It's something that's shown in the movies. Uh, I think of Once Upon a Time in America. What is it about local politics that has this interesting relationship and lends itself to this kind of intrigue? It's interesting because the city of LA is going through some level of scandal on that vein right now. Real estate requires a whole level of local approvals 
mostly ultimately directly or indirectly blessed by local elected officials who are in turn raising money for either their campaigns or their own charitable causes. Certainly in California now, most cities have a whole welter of regulations governing political contributions, and there's been a huge discussion in the LA City Council about further restrictions right now. What's different, certainly different in California somewhat, I think, Philadelphia, was everything was about the neighborhood scale, it was about old school stuff. I mean, my favorite description of Philadelphia came up recently when Barack Obama was running for president in 2008. And if you're a Democrat, to carry Pennsylvania, you want to carry Philadelphia and Pittsburgh big because you may lose the less populated areas. So the young Obama idealists go out there to the Democratic Party regulars and say, we're here, well, you're going to help us. And they said, where's the walking around money? Uh, in other words, and, oh, we don't do that. Well, they did that. That's not corruption. It's like, here's 100 bucks, here's 1,000 bucks, go spread it, make sure people get to the polls, I mean, that type of thing. That's just how business was done. In fact, in Philadelphia, some of the, the elected officials who were eventually convicted and did jail time had ind were independently wealthy. And... The question was asked of them, well, what'd you do that for? And the answer was, well, everybody does that. That's just what you do. Different culture, different time. So even amidst some of this intrigue and some of the chaos that you witnessed in Philly in the 70s, uh, your interest in public service was still not disenchanted. It was still unwearying. Your later two career moves where you, you then moved to Washington, D.C., worked for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and then subsequently in San Francisco as the deputy mayor of housing and the director of housing for under then Mayor Feinstein. What was that like? What, were, what, were some of, what was your experience at the federal level compared to um, now in the leadership position in, well, in local politics? Well, at the, the federal level, I initially worked as a lobbyist for a national housing organization. And it was a conscious decision to move away from the trench warfare and back into policy. My experience at HUD was instructive in that it happened to be the last year of the Carter administration. I was working directly for the Federal Housing Commissioner. It was hugely political because at the time, Washington had all the money. And that's how, through my boss, I met Mayor Feinstein and was hired to go to San Francisco. The common thread, though, is wherever you're working, and something that's always been important to me, is you're dealing with people dealing with all kinds of people. You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to know how to get things done. And I remember at HUD thinking, oh my gosh, I'm dealing with the White House. And the people at the White House seemed inept. And it made it simpler for me. It's just, they don't know how to get anything done. Philadelphia, they knew how to get things done, but there were different problems. And in San Francisco, I didn't know a soul. I came out here, I didn't know anybody. California, I found, unlike, say, Philadelphia, a much easier place to come in from somewhere else. I think that's true of most of California and still get in the middle of things. And I just made it my business to go out and meet people, meet the constituents. It was particularly important there because unlike L.A. and some of these cities, you reported to the mayor. There was no city manager. There was no one in between. You were on the political side, but also running the programs. It was you or the mayor. And... I think it was helpful to learn the place. I've, like I said, I've always had this fascination with neighborhoods. San Francisco is a very, not balkanized, but there, it was all about constituencies. 
the different factions in the Chinese community, the different factions in the gay community, who does what to whom, who's close to whom, how do you get something done if people oppose you? You always had to have some technical background, but that alone wouldn't get things done. I would love to kind of paint a picture of this San Francisco at the time because I think it might be illustrative of what we're seeing now. It actually is. Somebody dug up a quote from me from April 1981. I had just arrived in San Francisco and I guess real estate values were taking off, which is familiar. And I was quoted as saying something to the effect that San Francisco may be the most expensive city in America and you know, I was all about affordable housing. And if you look back, it was sort of deja vu all over again. Now, it's more acute now, but kind of been to this movie before. It's just that this one's more extreme. So San Francisco has just come off the shock of Dan White assassinating the former mayor, George Moscone, and um, the gay uh, supervisor, Harvey Milk, which led to Dianne Feinstein's ascension to mayor in 79. This was 81, two years ago. The city was still reeling a little bit from that. And the city was in the midst of major neighborhood transitions. The whole middle class part of the western part of the city, which had been predominantly Irish, Italian, and Jewish, was becoming heavily Asian. And it just happened, but there was still discomfort. North Beach used to be Italian, it was becoming Chinese. The African-American population was beginning what has been a steady decline for a variety of reasons. So the power structures were in flux. And Dianne Feinstein was a centrist. I know people think of her, oh, this liberal San Franciscan, very moderate. And by San Francisco standards, very much a moderate. Kind of in the middle, viewed as pro-business, sensitive to social, social and human rights issues, but not so liberal on economic issues. So there was always tensions, there was always things in flux. But what I also saw was at the end of the day in a climate like that, it really is best to run things somewhat from the middle where you can deal with all sides. So that takes us sort of to the present, at least after I believe it was nine years serving in local government in San Francisco, you were then tapped to essentially start the California arm of the related companies. Can you talk about how that happened and so like? in the late 80s, my brother, who'd always been in real estate, although younger than me, and a partner of his formed a company to develop office buildings in California. Through a broker, they met Steve Ross, the chairman then and now of Related, and they competed for and won a development site in the south of Market area of San Francisco, which then was pioneering somewhat. And nobody had even heard of Related. It was sort of out of the blue, it was sort of a coup. And so Steve was out here, and Related started in the 1970s as a developer and syndicator of government-assisted housing, and then morphed into everything else, but always had that niche. And he asked my brother, you know, we should be doing some affordable housing in California. We've never really been in California. And my brother said, well, you should talk to my brother. And I'll never forget, he interviewed, Steve interviewed me at the uh, Mandarin Oriental Hotel when it was still there on California Street. And at the end of the discussion, he said, I don't know if you know what you're doing, but you sound good, so let's try this. <laughs> that's true. Probably stay the same thing today. And that's how it started. It was just me. And we immediately got involved in this very big, very complicated 
redevelopment of an old public housing site in the Harbor City area of LA, which sent me and my new wife and baby down to Southern California, and the rest followed from there. So we can now, I think let's get into some of the projects uh, that you've worked on or currently working on. I think a great starting point, at least something that we're very interested in, uh, is turning now to probably what is related California's most eye-catching development, the Grand. For anyone who has recently taken a visit to hear Maestro Dudamel at the LA Philharmonic, at the uh, Walt Disney Concert Hall, or to see Jeff Koons and friends at the Broad Museum, they will undoubtedly have also seen the giant hole in the ground across the street from the concert hall where construction has just broken ground for related Frank Gehry design, the Grand. This is nothing short of an epic undertaking from a financing perspective, the vision it promotes for Grand Avenue, the design, and of course the architect himself. So after over a decade in the making, how did this project finally come off the ground? So in the 90s, culminating in the late 90s, largely through the efforts of Eli Broad and Frank Gehry, Disney Hall came to pass. And all of a sudden, it called attention to the fact, now you have this gem on Bunker Hill, and you have all these parking lots. It's like, that's a shame. And Eli persuaded the city and the county, who normally are combatants, to form a joint powers authority to develop the remaining parking lot sites. And it it included county supervisor Gloria Molina, whose district included that, and city council member Jan Perry, who represented downtown. They did a request for qualifications, got it down to two national developers related in Forest City, ultimately picked related. I think a lot based on related then recent success, this is 2004, 2005, with the Time Warner Center project Mm -hmm. in Manhattan. Because that's the grand vision that people thought about for Bunker Hill. It was all about Disney Hall. At the time, the sky seemed the limit. Those were the salad days for real estate. Nothing was too big, nothing was too complicated, anything was possible. And I think we and the city and the county kind of fed each other. Initially, we had different architects. I said, you really ought to talk to Frank. Talk to Frank. Initially, we said, well, he'll do one tower. Well, he talked to Steve Ross separately and said, well, kind of, well, you know, the knee bone's connected to the thigh bone. And next thing (laughs) you know, he was doing the whole thing. We signed a development agreement in 2007. Then the recession hit. So everything just stopped, not just there. Along the way, Gloria Molina, through Eli, convinced Steve to do something we'll probably never do again. They had valued the site where the hole in the ground is today at $50 million. And Steve agreed to pay the $50 million, A, without final approvals, and B, before we had financing or anything. So we paid the $50 million. They took the $50 million and under our management, paid to design and build Grand Park. People seem to forget that that was us, but it was. So they, no matter what happened, they got a park out of it. And along the way, it's funny because even as this was going on, Related made a deal with the Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York to start working on and pay for what became the Hudson Yards project. Now that was multiple times bigger than Grand Avenue, way more complicated, and yet they raised billions of dollars to do that. That goes to how 
challenging the economics have been mm -hmm. for the Gary site. It's a billion dollar project, but today, you know, billion dollars isn't what it used to be. I mean, it's a lot, but those things exist. What made it unusual were a couple of things. First, unlike almost every other site in LA, where you build a building, then you build another building, and you build another building, you have to build the whole block at once. Two towers, interconnected retail and public space. So right out of the chute, it was much more complicated and more expensive. Most of the projects downtown had built their parking from the ground up rather than going underground, which is much more expensive. But we couldn't do that because then you wouldn't have pedestrian access from the street. So we had to go underground, much more expensive. We initially had a, a, an understanding with the Mandarin Oriental Hotel to be the hotel. Ultimately, I think a decision was made, as we did in Time Warner Center, that that was too pricey for downtown. It just wouldn't work, so they dropped out. Then we made a deal with the up-and-coming Sam Nazarian and his SLS hotel group, and they were going to be the hotel. And why was this important? Well, Sam ran into legal problems, which have been well-documented, and it made clear we weren't getting financing if he was in the deal. So then there went the SLS. Meanwhile, downtown progressed. Things began to improve some. And Related, which had bought into and now owns Equinox and SoulCycle, had started an Equinox hotel brand, the first building of which is going to open in a month in Hudson Yards. So the hotel became an Equinox hotel. Getting all of this financed, even with someone as big an experience as Related, however, required an investor to accept that we were going to get premium values on the residential, the retail, and to some degree the hotel over everything else downtown. You can't prove that. You can't point to a site and say, well, they got it there. People had to believe, as we did, that this is the premium location downtown. Downtown has many neighborhoods. You know, Staples Center is, is Times Square. The Arts District's the Arts District. Yeah. This isn't the Ace Hotel District. This is higher end. You had to believe. And ultimately, Steve Ross could have walked away like I think any other developer would have. It's, you know what? This is just too much money. Spent tens of millions of dollars. We're never going to get it back. I'm gone. He insisted. He said, no, I'm going to build. I don't care. I, I, I think we're going to do okay, but I don't care. I'm going to build. We're going to get this built. And not once in the 15 years I've been involved in this have I ever gotten a call from another developer saying, you know, I'm happy to step into your shoes or we'll, we'll take this over if you want. Not once. I always said about this project, the problems are not going to be political. They'll be technical. They'll be financial. They'll be economic. Yeah. So finally, we got a Chinese equity partner who had the resources and the patience. This block alone is about a billion dollars, 650 million of which approximately is construction financing led by Deutsche Bank, 350 million is equity, some of which is ours, and it's, it's gonna get built. Part of why we're so excited to talk to you about this project, but just generally, is that, as we talked about in the beginning, you have this great dual perspective. You were once a planner, but now you're a developer. And I wanna get into some of the theoretical ideas that underpin this project. The LA Times recently ran an article on the Grand asking the question, of whether the Grand will actually make Grand Avenue a, quote, great civic place, that is a great public-facing place. 
And I want to read a quick quote, and then I'll have you respond. So addressing some of the more upscale elements, retail and residential elements planned for the grand, the LA Times wrote, quote, corporate demands are what keeps even the best intentioned developer projects from becoming true civic projects. So do you think this is true? Would you say, as this writer seems to suggest, that in other words, the public's experience of a given development is necessarily in tension with a private interest, of private interests of the developer? Is that, is that a fair assessment, would you say? What this particular writer is an architecture critic. And what I find, not all, but in many cases with those critics, is the fact that you had to, whenever you have to build from scratch, people would love everything to look like Old Town Pasadena or Soho. But when you have a blank slate, you can't do that. You're building new. When we started this process, we did public hearings all over the city, not just downtown. It was asked people about that. What's your favorite public space? You know, first of all, they would say, we don't want New York, okay? We're LA, we don't want New York. And I'd ask them, what's your favorite public space? Inevitably, they'd tell me a space in New York. But I get it. This is a year-round climate, et cetera. So what that article overlooked were a couple of things. First of all, as I recall, it didn't even mention Grand Park. That didn't exist. That was a death valley before Grand Park. This project created Grand Park. Number two, there's a 12,000 square foot sort of public space in the middle of the block that you access. It's porous, you can access from all sides, main entries off Grand Avenue. We no, developer wouldn't normally do that. Why would you do that? You're not getting any revenue from that. And unlike some of the older buildings on Grand Avenue that turned their back on this public and the street, this opened into the street. Now, to the corporate comment, when it costs a billion dollars to build a project, I always scratch my head and say, what do people think you're going to build? Somebody has to pay for this. And unless somebody like Eli, God bless him, who just spent 160, 70 million of his own money to build the museum and put up a $200 million endowment to cover the operations of it, so it's free, unless somebody's subsidizing this, which could be the public, there has to be a commercial component to pay for all of this. To me, that's sort of elementary, but architecture critics seem to overlook that. The other thing was not mentioned is nobody else downtown, through all these 10,000 new housing units, seems to be putting affordable housing on there. How the city let that happen escapes me. 20% of our units on the site of these expensive Gary buildings are not affordable, but low-income housing. Didn't even mention that. And didn't mention also that on the almost 200,000 feet of retail space, which is mostly food, beverage, entertainment, that's today's retail, there's going to be a wide range of price points. But are there Singapore street food stalls? No. You know, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. We were asked and held, which we readily accepted, say, this got to be the best design in the city. Look around downtown. Tell me, including, I'll admit, the Emerson. When you buildings, you say, oh, wow, look at that. That's an unbelievable building. Somehow, Grand Avenue, a lot of the critics have put all their hopes and dreams onto this one site, mm -hmm. maybe because of all the hoopla and the Gary and everything. And frankly, I think they're going to get it. I want to transition to a topic you have a very demonstrable passion for and you've touched on, which is affordable housing. It's demonstrated and related to extensive portfolio of affordable housing throughout the state. And as we've touched on, you have 
academic credential, you worked at the federal level for HUD, you worked at the local level, of course, now you have three decades of executive experience. Let's just say for a moment, you were to be thrust back into your role as deputy mayor for housing. Let's even say you become the newly appointed housing czar for all of California. How would you analyze the challenge of housing affordability in the state? And how would you advise, let's say, the governor in the way of solutions? Are there any concrete steps that you, you see? Well, first of all, if you're talking about the state level, this is like four or five states. And as we're seeing recently, efforts to impose statewide requirements run up against significant opposition. So I think one thing I would try to do is lay out principles that hopefully would be adopted regionally and locally. The first step is all about land use. And that's the most politically sensitive part of this whole equation, as has been seen in the reaction, especially in Southern California in the suburbs, to San Francisco State Senator Scott Wiener's SB 50, which would encourage higher density housing and transit zones. So try as you might, I think the action has to occur more at the local and regional level. Housing markets are regional, they're not local, but they're not statewide. The Fresno MSA is a lot different from the Bay Area. Second, which is happening, you can't regulate your way out of this problem, and it does, for affordable housing, especially deeply affordable housing, requires subsidy. And the state has taken, and I would have encouraged this, steps to put voter-approved bond measures, not just for homeless, but for affordable housing as well. But I always come back to the local level. There's only so much the state can make happen. For the first time in my memory, a governor here, Governor Newsom, sued a city over not meeting its housing goals with Huntington Beach. And of course, that's been met with gnashing of teeth and great angst. This is not something you solve overnight. But the other thing I would do, and this is a sensitive topic, job growth creates housing demand. Housing doesn't create housing demand. Of late, you've seen a lot of cities trying to impose fees and things on housing to pay for affordable housing, okay? But meanwhile, I'm not saying we shouldn't have job growth, but the job growth, especially the tech and higher income job growth, has been not, not been matched by housing development anywhere. I have just two more questions for you. The first is, I'll read a quote. You gave an interview with The Real Deal at some point, I think it was last year. Um, the quote is, something that just has to be embedded in your psyche if you're going to develop in coastal California at any scale is that you have to be able to communicate with, listen to, and deal with community groups and neighborhoods. Does this advice, I'm curious, does this advice originate from any experiences you've had in which you had a particularly difficult time dealing with community groups? And generally, what is kind of your approach to, for lack of a better term, nimbyism? It's not like I had some terrible experience and learned from it. I think I always just kind of figured it. A lot of our success is that we are a principle-driven company and we tend to do all of that ourselves. We may work with consultants and land use planners and things, but we do that ourselves. The most active potential NIMBY situation maybe I've had is when we got the approvals to build this 40-story condo tower in 2006 called the Century. Because that's in the western part of the city, very development resistant, very organized, very experienced. A lot of meetings. And 
it's patience, it's listening, it's explaining. If you can't do something, tell them why you can't do it. Don't just say you can't do it. The people appreciate candor. They appreciated speaking to someone who was a principal, who could be somewhat of the decision maker. And the other thing I'd say about nimbyism is it takes different forms. I always am careful not to demonize project opponents, especially when you have something like homeless. Homeless is a complicated issue. If you had kids and you have a project down the street that is people who are acknowledged to have mental illness and drug problems, wouldn't you be concerned? I mean, it's complicated. There are situations where I think it's over the top and it's unfair, and I blame local elected officials as much as I do neighborhoods for that. So there are different kinds of nimbyism. And nimbyism is much harder to combat in a wealthy community because there's nothing you can offer. They don't want anything. They want you to go away. In that same interview for The Real Deal, you elaborated on what spawned your interest in affordable housing, and I think this will take us sort of full circle, and it's, you said something very interesting that i like to close with. Um, you said, I've always been interested in cities, in ethnic neighborhoods, street life, the sort of gritty vitality of them. The phrase gritty vitality makes me think of New York or Philadelphia or Shanghai, but it is not necessarily the atmosphere that's conjured when one thinks of the sort of prototypical suburban single-family paradigm in California. So just to close, would you say that this paradigm will soon be or is a thing of the past? And do you regard yourself as an agent of that eventual change? No, I don't think it's ever going to be a thing of the past. But what I see as very different is the desire, even in the suburbs, for conjuring up something that could even resemble gritty vitality. Everybody wants a food hall. Everybody wants gritty vitality. The difference is they also want good schools. They also want to get a long way to go in the cities. I do see evidence of millennials staying in cities longer than their predecessors. School thing is the great equalizer. So, no, I don't think the old paradigm is a thing of the past, but I think the old paradigm is changing itself. What's being built and planned today, in most cases, is more about a mix of uses, more about bringing some urban vitality to suburban areas where you can still get good schools and things. But no, I don't think the suburbs are going away. Bill Whitty, thank you so much. This episode of City Speak was also sponsored by Scott Properties Group, a proactive, full-service property management firm specializing in residential and commercial properties in the greater Los Angeles region. Please visit scott-properties.com or call 424-272-6439 for more info. This has been City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas, produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith. Tune in again for our next episode.